Our study tonight, um, well, our series is Who Needs Theology? Who Needs Theology? So we understand theology is what? The study of God, right? So as we study God, we need to understand him in a proper way to have a better relationship. Today, we're going to go through the deity of Christ. There you go. <laughs> so the question today, is Jesus God? So, we're going to start with a verse in Hebrews chapter 1, verse 3. He is the radiance of the glory of God and the exact imprint of his nature. And he upholds the universe by the word of his power. After making purification for sins, he sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high. So our big question, is Jesus God? This is absolutely, positively crucial. Because there's a ton of heresies going on. And there's a lot of things that, hey, you could be a Christian. You just got to believe in Jesus, right? Right? You got to believe in Jesus. So if you got to believe in Jesus, well, who is Jesus? Well, if we just believe in Jesus, well, are we believing that he's a good person? What about a good teacher? Oh, was he a prophet like the Muslims think? Oh, no, he's like Jehovah's Witnesses when he say he's a God. So he's created. In order to have salvation, you must believe in the person, in the divinity of Jesus Christ. Understand, when Thomas said, my Lord and my God, they were acknowledging Jesus as the omnipotent, omniscient, all, the creator of all things. So we must acknowledge his divinity. So this is the most crucial question. And the difference between Jewish people and Christians, you know what it is? What do you do with Jesus? That's always the issue because they don't believe the Messiah came. We believe the Messiah came in the person of Jesus Christ. So if we are Christians, we affirm that Jesus is God, that is, the God-man. If he is less than God... In our estimation, we are not Christians. A Christian is one who claims that Jesus is God. There is such thing as a damning, the faint praise, saying that Jesus was a prophet, but not the Son of God. That's what Muslims claim. Now, also in the Quran, just so you know, it says that Jesus was born of a virgin. Um... He performed miracles and was sinless. You know what Muhammad was not? He was not born of a virgin. He was not sinless. And he performed no miracles. So if you're evangelizing to a Muslim, the question is, would you want to follow the sinner who performed no miracles or the sinless miracle worker? A little apologetics there for you guys. So saying that he was a good man, a good teacher, a good example. Because if he was just a good teacher, understand, he did claim that he was God. So if that was not true, 
would he be a good teacher teaching you falsehoods? No. So, but that, G, that he was not God just undermines Jesus. So now here's the purpose tonight. We're going to go over what the Bible claims about the deity of Jesus Christ. Deity, Godhood, Godship, fully divine. The deity of Christ means, if you don't want to take a whole bunch of notes because there's going to be a whole bunch of words on these uh, slides, I'll send you the PowerPoint. Yeah, this college student's like, yeah, send me the PowerPoint. <laughs> I'll go over it later. That Christ was, is, and fully God. What Jesus himself claimed as his own deity, what Jesus conscience pertaining to himself did he ever say i am god if not can we say that he claimed deity for himself there's some christological heresies which we kind of briefly over what christological means in any teaching that pertains to the person of christ and heresy a false doctrine or teaching that is according to the historic consensus of the church so buckle up tonight because there's going to be a whole lot of Bible verses. We're going to be going through as much as we can in the short time we do have. I'm actually putting a timer on myself. So, why is this lesson important? Who is Jesus? The most important question must ultimately be answered is whether or not he is God. Many Christians affirm his deity, but would be unable to defend it or prove it. It's scary how true that statement is. Say, so, yeah, Jesus is God. Oh, okay, could you show me? The average Jehovah's Witness will crush the average Christian any day of the week. Because what they do is they study their arguments on a consistent basis. This lesson will help us see why the church claims that Jesus is God. You should be able to help another... Uh, to see this after this lesson. So part of, now I keep going from theology to apologetics. Apologetics is the defense of the faith. So you need to know what you believe, why you believe it, and explain it simply. That's apologetics in a nutshell. But that also comes down to what? Evangelism. If you're going to evangelize, you have to explain what you believe, why you believe it, and explain it simply. The most offensive claim in the Christian faith is that Jesus is God. And that the only way to heaven is by Jesus Christ. You can't get to heaven on your own works. That's offensive to people. Jesus said, I am the way and the truth and the life. And no one comes to the Father except through me. That is one of the most absolute claims ever. So the question is, is Christianity absolute or relative? It makes absolute claims. It has to be absolute. Because if it's not, then there's many ways to heaven. And if there's many ways to heaven, why be a Christian? So, why is the lesson important continued? We need to see why this is true. If Jesus is not God, the claim of the Christian faith, and then... The church is not only false, it would mean that Christianity is a lie and that we are all deceived. Now we need to get to the bottom of this. If Jesus is not God, we should close down all churches. 
the inspiration and reliability of the Bible hangs on this question. Understand, Christianity is like a house of cards. If you take one out, it will crumble. But the thing is, you have to be able to take one out. For example, the resurrection, the deity of Christ, deity of the Holy Spirit. Holy Spirit is not a force. It's a person. He is God. He's called he, Scripture. The inspiration and reliability of the Bible hangs on this entire question. All that is said tonight is based on Holy Scripture. There is no other authoritative source. During the Protestant Reformation, the concept of sola scriptura, in Scripture alone, means that Scripture is the ultimate authority. We have to look at Scripture as the ultimate authority here on earth. Now, now let's get into our study. What the Bible says about Christ's deity. We went over the virgin birth, but I'm going to briefly jump over it. Virgin birth. Jesus did not have an earthly father. Mary's reaction to the promise of the angel Gabriel that she would become pregnant. How will this be? Mary asked the angel, since I am a virgin. Understand, there was a presupposition at the time. First century Jewish culture and religion said that God can do whatever he wants. They understood that God was the creator and sustainer of all things. He's the creator of all things. So if he's the creator, he's the one that knits you together in your mother's womb. So they understood this. So in this segment of the virgin birth, Gabriel said she would give birth to a son and his name will be Jesus. Gabriel added, he will be great and will be called the son of the most high. So the holy one to be born will be called the son of God. That's Luke 1, 32 to 35. This would take place by the Holy Spirit who will come upon you. And the angel answered and said to her, the Holy Spirit will come upon you and the power of the highest will overshadow you. For nothing is impossible with God. And then the birth of the son without a human father, but rather the most high God, would only mean that Jesus is God's son. Now him being the son of God. Now understand when it says the only begotten. The word in Greek is monogenes, which means the only unique kind. How many unique kinds of God can you have? This is why when he said he is the son of God, they wanted to stone him because they understood. as, Like we can say God is our father, right? Jesus says God is my father. It's a different claim. He's saying he is the only son. So using the term son of God is the same as saying Jesus is God. And the New Testament makes no distinction between the terms. The son of God is, we equally mean that God, the son, the Jews saw it this way in the first century Judaism. That's why you'll see that the Pharisees wanted to stone him. Jesus' testimony to being the son of God was the ammunition that the Jews needed to justify crucifying him. So you know why it's what it's called, right? It's called blasphemy, when you make yourself equal to God. So they wanted to stone him, couldn't stone him, so they wanted to crucify him. They all said, are you then the son of God? So he said to them, you rightly say that I am. 
And they said, what further testimony do we need? For we have heard it ourselves from his own mouth. Now, the Son of God. The purpose of the Gospel of John. Now, the Gospel of John, the underlying theme is the divinity of Jesus Christ. So you see it right off the bat. In the beginning was the Word, the Word was God, the Word was God. And right in verse 14 in chapter 1, it says that the Word became flesh and dwelt among us. So the purpose of the Gospel, John is summed up, but these are written that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the anointed one, the Son of God, but that believing that you may have life in his name, John 20 Verse 31, the contents of his gospel include, in the beginning was the word, the word was God, the word was God. We are not stoning you for any of these, replied the Jews, but for blasphemy because you, a mere man, claim to be God. Therefore the Jews sought all the more to kill him because he not only broke the Sabbath, but also said that God was his father, making himself equal with God. The New Testament, as well as the ancient Jews, made no distinction between these terms. Now, the Son of God meant the same thing as being God, that is, God the Son. So we got that part. Now we go through explicit references to the deity of Jesus. Once again, we go back to John 1.1. 1, 1. In the beginning was the Word. The Word was God. The Word was God. So, interestingly enough, in this passage, this one verse, you see two things right off the bat. One, you have the Word, and the Word being distinct from God, and being God at the same time, which is pointing to what? A Trinitarian perspective. Right off the bat. And in Greek philosophy at the time, they thought the word logos, which is the Greek word for word, was where the concept of reason and speech coming together. Now, if you were to go to the Old Testament, you read what's called the Targums, which is the Aramaic Bible. In various places where the Hebrew Bible will say Yahweh, right, God, the Aramaic Bible will say the word of Yahweh. So they always made that distinction of the word and God, but it's being the same as God, even in the Aramaic Bible. So the reason why they made an Aramaic Bible, because after the post-exilic period, when Jews went to Babylon, they started speaking Aramaic because the people in Babylon could not speak, uh, could not speak Hebrew. Their primary language was Akkadian, and the trade language was Aramaic. So that's why the first century Jewish people spoke Aramaic. And that was the primary language, but they also spoke Hebrew and Greek. I know you all are bored now. <laughs> so, my rant about Aramaic and all that stuff. So there's no way that we can get around this verse with integrity. Not at all. Because you see the word being God. It's point blank. See, once again, the New World Translation, the Jehovah's Witness will say that he is a God. It was translated by, um, well, it started off with Charles Taves Russell, who said he was a Greek scholar, and then he was tested in court and found out he was not a Hebrew or a Greek scholar. He couldn't, you know, translate proper Hebrew or Greek or simple stuff, too. So he found out to be a fraud. 
and we're going to notice that it's actually what's called modern-day Arianism. So it shows that Christ's relationship with the Father, the word Greek, logos, was with God. So it also shows his pre-existence right there, too. It shows the pre-existence of the word, and the word becoming flesh and dwelt among us, and we beheld his glory and the glory of his only begotten of the Father, full of grace and truth, as John 1.14. Athanasius, uh, who lived between uh, 296 to 393, held to this verse in an atmosphere where it changed with the making of Jesus like God. So if you look at the two Greek words in the second to last point, homo osseus and homo eosius. So one with that little I, right, it's called the iota in Greek. One is saying that he is the same nature as God. The other one is saying he is like God. So the one with the little I is the bad one. The one without the I is a good one because we're saying he's the same essence, he's the same nature. And where you see the phrase one iota of difference, literally it's one iota of difference, which made the difference between a word that says, well, Jesus is like God or he has the same nature as God. Massive difference. Athanasius won the day over and Arius, in his view, has regarded as um, orthodox sound ever since. So it's orthodox Christianity. The new people here, they're like, we're we going to get all this theology today? <laughs> so, no one ever has ever seen God, but God, the one and only, who is at the Father's side, has made him known, John 1.18. This is unpacking of John 1.1 and John 1.14. See, Scripture interprets Scripture, but it also supports Scripture. This is why it's good to do cross-references, because if you don't understand something, generally speaking, one, you pray, and second, you go do a cross-reference, and usually it explains it to you. John 1.18, perhaps the best translated, the unique one who is himself God. Thomas said to him, my Lord and my God. Now, when they said that in a monotheistic society, in a culture that says Jesus being God, they literally just equated him with the Father. That's point blank. Romans 9, 5, of whom are the fathers and from whom, according to the flesh, Christ came, who is over all, the eternally blessed God. Amen. Look for the blessed hope and glorious appearing of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ, Titus 2.13. But to the Son, he, had, he says, Your throne, O God, is forever and ever. A scepter of righteous is the scepter of your kingdom. Hebrews 1.8. 2 Peter 1.1. Simon Peter, a bondservant of the apostle Jesus Christ. Now, if you notice in the epistles, Peter says this. So does Paul. He always says, a bondservant first, before they say they're apostles. Kind of what we should be living in our Christian life. We should be servants prior to being any kind of titles. So, 
apostle of Jesus Christ, to those who have obtained like precious faith with us by the righteousness of our God and Savior, Jesus Christ. And we know that the Son of God has come and has given us understanding that we may know him who is true, and we are in him who is true, and his Son, Jesus Christ. This is the true God and eternal life. 1 John 5, 20. Now notice this little note here. This further shows that being the Son of God is the same as being God. This is also brought out by the words that God was manifested in the flesh. 1 Timothy 3.16. Philippians 2.6. Who, being the form of God, did not consider himself, did not consider it robbery to be equal with God. So the form, Greek, morpho, means what a thing really is inwardly and outwardly. In the form of God is a strong statement of Christ's deity as could possibly be made. Colossians 1, 16-17, For in him dwells the fullness of the Godhead bodily. For by him all things were created that are in heaven and that are on earth, Visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or principalities or powers, all things were created through him and for him, and he is before all things, and in him all things consist. John 1 3, just said, we're summarizing, he is the creator. <laughs> Matthew 1 23, his name is Emmanuel, God with us. Isaiah applies the name of God. Uh, God to the coming Messiah. For unto us a child is born, unto us a son is given, and the government will be upon his shoulder. And his name will be called Wonderful, Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. Isaiah 9 6. Colossians 1 5. He is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation. Hebrews 1 3. We kind of went through that, but. We're going to use it again. Who being the brightness of glory and the express image of his person and upholding all things by the word of his power, when he had by himself purged our sins, sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high. So the first one I use the ESV. This is I use the New King James. In Christ, the mirror image of the Father, what do you see in a mirror? The question is, well, you see a replica, right? You see in the mirror, you look at yourself, right? Like, that's what I see. The Son is divine mirror image of the Father. So now we move on to Jesus as Lord. Sometimes the word, so the word for Lord or God in the Greek, there's two words really that are used. One is kurios, which is used 745 times in the New Testament. There's another word. A lot of people don't know about this word. It's called despotes. It's used ten times in the New Testament. It literally means Lord or Master. So typically you'll see the word kurios here. So sometimes the word in Greek, kurios, is used simply as a polite uh, to, to address uh, someone that's superior, roughly equivalent to a sir. You see that in Matthew 13, 17, 21, 30, 27, 63, and John 4, 11. 
See, the same word, however, is used in the Septuagint, which is the Greek, New Te- uh, Greek translation of the Old Testament, for Yahweh translated Lord. So you see kurios. So kurios translates the name Lord 6,814 times in the Old Testament alone. Anyone with knowledge of that at the time would know that Lord was used to mean the creator, the omnipotent one. So now we go through Luke 2.11. For there is born to you this day in the city of David a Savior who is Christ the Lord. But why is this granted to me that the mother of my Lord should come to me? Luke 1.43. For this is he who was spoken by the prophet Isaiah saying, The voice of one crying in the wilderness, prepare the way of the Lord, make his path straight. Matthew 3.3. Yet for us there is... One God, the Father, of whom are all things, and we for him, and one Lord Jesus Christ, through whom are all things, and through whom we live. 1 Corinthians 12, 3. Therefore I make known to you that no one speaking by the Spirit of God calls Jesus accursed, and no one can say that Jesus is Lord except by the Holy Spirit. So, why are we going through this? Well, we need to be equipped to, one, defend our faith, but we got to know what we believe and why we believe it. You're not going to say Jesus is Lord with no evidence. Paul always had evidence. If you notice Paul's writings, it was always an argument. He was always arguing. It was always a problem, right? Always, like literally, if you just read the epistles, you're like, well, there's the problem there. Well, here's the solution. But he's arguing and, and proving a point. The great preacher of the 20th century, Martin Lloyd-Jones, that's how he preached. He was always in an argumentative fashion in the sense that he was given a defense for what he believed. We need to be able to give a defense for why we believe. So now our next section is Jesus' own claim to deity. Jesus' own claim to deity. Jesus asked Peter, so who do you say that I am? Simon Peter said, you are the Christ, the Son of the living God. Now, if you are Catholic, right off the bat, because further on, because it says, upon this rock, we will I'll build my church. This is the prelude to this, because you have to look at this passage in its entirety, that the rock that we build the church upon is the claim that Jesus is the Christ. He is the Son of the living God. So if you ever deal with someone that's Catholic and that's dealing with that issue, because at that point they think that Peter was the first pope. There's a 300-year gap there. Just saying. A little bit. So Jesus answered that to him, Blessed are you, Simon Barjona, for flesh and blood has not revealed this to you, but by my Father who is in heaven. Another my Father claim. While he was still speaking, behold, a bright cloud overshadowed them. And suddenly a voice came out of the cloud saying, This is my beloved Son in whom I am well pleased. Hear him. 
Jesus' reference to his origin and pre-existence. The Jews then complained about him because he said, I am the bread which came down from heaven. In John 6, 41, I am the living bread which came down from heaven. If anyone eats of this bread, he will live forever. And the bread that I will give is my flesh, which I shall give for the life of the world. John 6, 51. Now let's go through a little theology here. He gave his life for the world. If you know anything about Calvinism and Arminianism. This is pointing to what is called unlimited atonement. Meaning that Jesus died for the entire world, not just for the elect. And another cross-reference, if you want one for that, is 1 John 2.2. 2. That he didn't die for the propitiation just for us, but for the whole world. So Jesus died for the entire world. And the Father himself who sent him, who sent me, has testified of me. You have neither heard his voice at any time, nor seen his form. John 5:37. Not that anyone has seen the Father except he who is from God. He has seen the Father. John 6:46. And he said to them, You are from beneath I am from above you are of this world I am not of this world interesting so when people say that Jesus never claimed to be God come on we're still going so once again Jesus references origin and pre-existence so he pre-existed creation, right? The Jews then complained about him because he said, I am the bread which came down. Oh, I'm sorry. I repeated that same slides. Apologize. So now we go to the Son of Man. I apologize that. So this title is used 84 times in the four Gospels, but only by Jesus and only to speak of himself. So the Son of Man he only used for himself. Now this expression refers to his, not to his humility or humanity, but to his deity. A lot of people get this one wrong. They always say, oh, he's the Son of Man, so let's talk about his humanity. Nope. show you why. Daniel chapter 7, 7 verse 14. Then to him was given dominion and glory and a kingdom that all peoples, nations, and languages should serve him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion which shall not pass away and his kingdom the one which shall not be destroyed. It speaks of one who had a heavenly origin, and he was given an eternal rule over the entire world. Back again to the Son of Man. The high priest did not miss the point when Jesus said, answering the high priest, and that he was the Son of God and Son of Man. He made both claims. The high priest said, I charge you under oath 
by the living God. Tell us if you are the Christ, the Son of God. Jesus said to him, is as you said. Nevertheless, I say to you, hereafter, you will see the Son of Man sitting at the right hand of the power and coming on the clouds of heaven. Matthew 26, 64. Then the high priest tore his clothes, saying, He has spoken blasphemy. What further need do we have of witness? Look, now you have heard his blasphemy. It's pretty harsh. Now we move on to the evidence of Jesus' deity. So my goal here was to Every stone kicked over. I wanted to see every passage that referred to the deity of Christ. and I use, Well, mainly in the New Testament. So we can use those as our ammunition to evangelize. And possibly if we get into a, de- a debate with someone, we have our ammunition to be able to defend our faith properly. So now we go to our evidence, right? The demonstration of omnipotence. All powerful when Jesus stilled the storm with a word. Matthew 8, 26 and 27. When Jesus multiplied the loaves and the fish, Matthew 14, 19. I didn't go through all of them because there's a lot of them. When Jesus changed the water into wine, John 2, 1 through 11. So this is the demonstration of his omnipotence, his eternality. Before Abraham was, I am. This is a crazy statement right here. This is referring to Exodus chapter 3, verse 14, when Moses is at the burning bush. And God's pushing him, hey, you're going to go let my people, save my people, right? And he says, well, who shall I say has sent me? I am that I am. Transliterated from the Hebrew would be, I will be who I will be. Imagine that concept. I just am. That's it. I call that the mic drop statement of the Bible. I am. That's it. Wrap your head around that for the next 10, 20, 30, 40, the rest of your life. Because theologians have been arguing and studying that one statement for centuries, I am. I am the Alpha and the Omega in Revelation twenty two thirteen. Alpha being the first letter of the Greek alphabet, Omega being the last. And because it was a Greek-speaking world with the Roman conquest, because the Romans maintained what? The philosophy, the arts, and the language. So the Roman Empire was Greek-speaking, so that's why I spoke in Greek. So he's saying in Revelation, and whose Revelation was it, by the way? Revelation who? Of Jesus Christ. Everyone's like, no, it's a Revelation of John. I'm like, no, it says in the first chapter. Revelation of Jesus Christ. But John was the author. So now we have his omniscience. He knows people's thoughts. So this is all knowingness. Mark 2.8. Seeing Nathaniel under a fig tree from far away. John 1.48. Knowing 
who would betray him, John 6, 64. The disciples said to him, now we can see that you know all things, John 16, 30. Now here's another one, John chapter 3. When Nicodemus comes to Jesus by night, so he kind of brown noses, he says, well, Rabbi, we know that you're from God because of all the things you do. And what does Jesus say right afterwards? He says, well, in order to enter the kingdom of heaven, one must be born again. So imagine you're talking football one day, and then all of a sudden, baseball gets thrown in there. That makes no sense. He knew exactly what he was looking for, and he gave him an answer because he knew his thoughts. So that points to his divinity. So he's all-knowing. His sovereignty, he's in control of all the things, right? He could forgive sins, Mark 2, 5 through 7. The Old Testament prophets would say, Thus saith the Lord, but Jesus said, But I say unto you. A prophet proclaimed God and was a mouthpiece for God. But Jesus says, But I say unto you. He had authority to reveal the Father to whomever he chose, Matthew eleven twenty five 25 to 27, which is interesting because he revealed his deity, his messiahship to the woman at the well, who was a Samaritan. Now, why is that strange? Well, the Samaritan people, they were what? They were called half-breeds, you know, quote, because during the Assyrian conquest, they took the Samaritan people and mated with them, and they had half-breed Jews. So they were half-bloods, right? In the Mishnah, which is the oral law eventually written down, it says that, I quote, that Samaritan men are subhuman, and Samaritan women are like menstruates from the cradle. Now, many of you just didn't know what that word meant. Menstruation. Now, in, in the Old Testament, menstruation was what? Unclean, right? They were saying they were subhuman, the most unclean thing in the world. Jesus, being a rabbi, quote-unquote a rabbi, right? He was, he's God, right? He's the son of God, but they called him rabbi. A rabbi in Old Testament times, or New Testament times, they weren't even supposed to have a conversation with women at all, let alone a Samaritan woman. Then he says, give me a drink. I'm paraphrasing all this. And he wanted to share the vessel in which she was going to give herself a drink. That was a big no-no in Jewish culture. It's almost like touching a leper. So he did reveal to whomever he wanted. Because... She ran back. But, you know, she, he told her her sin, you know, who she's been married to, who she's living with. And ran back to Samaria and said, hey, look, I know a guy that told me all my sins. You need to listen to him. And then people were listening to him in Samaria, which was a hostile place for Jewish people. Yeah. His immortality, only God has immortality. Jesus answered and said to them, destroy this temple and in three days I will raise it up. John 2, 19. 
Therefore, my Father loves me because I lay down my life that I may take it again. No one takes it from me, but I lay it down of myself. I have the power to lay it down, and I have the power to take it again. For this command I have received from my Father. Just a little side note, there's other things that was passed on to Jesus that we're not going to go through, but... In John chapter 5, all righteousness and judgment has been passed on from the Father to me. That's what Jesus says. So the righteous judge is not the Father, it is Jesus Christ. So he has the power of an indestructible life in Hebrews chapter 7, verse 16. The Magi came to worship him. So you have the worship of Jesus Christ was commended and commanded. The angels were told to worship him, Hebrews 1.6. Therefore, God also has highly exalted him and given him the name which is above every name, that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow, and those in heaven, and of those on earth, and of those under the earth, and that every tongue should confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Philippians 2, 9 through 11. The cross reference is Revelation 5, 12 to 13. Hang in there. We're almost done. We're going to go through heresies now. <laughs> Went through all this good doctrine. Now we're going to go through heresies. All right. Save the best for last. No. <laughs> so, in the first century, you have... Ebionites. These were Jews who, quote unquote, solved a Christological problem by denying the deity of Christ altogether. They said Jesus was an inspired prophet, but only a man. You remember in John chapter 6, you know, 666, when you had that great apostasy, when all the disciples, a bunch of disciples left after Jesus says, You must drink of my flesh, you must uh, eat of my flesh and drink of my blood. That means you need to consume them completely. You know in the Talmud, which is the commentary on the Mishnah that we just talked about, it says that the Messiah will come and you must eat of his flesh and drink of his blood. Interesting. Non-Christian writings are pointing to those things, those extra-biblical writings. So they rejected the virgin birth regarding Jesus as born normally from Joseph and Mary, and yet they claimed he was a predestined Messiah and would return to reign on earth. Interesting, because typically Jewish people thought of the Messiah from two different people. Now we go to Arianism, 4th century. So this is modern-day Jehovah's Witness. Arius, bishop of Alexandria, taught that Jesus was at one point, created by God the Father. Remember when Solomon said, there's nothing new under the sun? Well, it's the same old song and dance, just a remix. Arianism is Jehovah's Witness. That's it. For that time, the sun did not exist. So, you know, messes up his preexistence. Before that time, the Holy Spirit did not exist. So they're saying that you only have the Father and not the Son and the and the Holy Spirit, which goes against our Trinitarian doctrine. 
The Son, however, existed before the rest of creation, and His far greater than all the rest of creation. He is still not equal to the Father in all His attributes. He is like, remember, the Father, but not the same nature. Homeosis. The Nicene Creed, owing to the influence of Athanasius, condemned Arianism and affirmed that the Lord Jesus Christ was the Son of God, begotten, remember, begotten, monogenes, right, only begotten, the only new kind, the Father, only begotten, that is, of the substance of the Father, God of God, light of light, the true God of true God, begotten, not made, of one substance with the Father, through whom all things were made. Arianism. Only begotten? Well, in the Greek, monogenes. Well, it's saying being born of. So if you look at the entirety of the Old Testament, New Testament, you see like begotten, 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 like all these people that have kids. Well, that's what it means. But in Greek, in the Greek language, monogenes was his only begotten. That's monogenes. That means only unique kinds, only used in the phrase of Jesus Christ. Okay. Polinarianism. Fourth century. A lot of bad things happened in the fourth century. Apollinarius. <laughs> hey, man. <laughs> the Bishop of Laodicea. Hello, Laodicean Church. Yeah, lukewarm church. There you go. <laughs> no, I don't make it. <laughs> Oppose Arianism, but embrace the divinity of Jesus without accepting his full manhood. Now we got a problem. Next week, we're going over the humanity of Jesus Christ, by the way. The teaching was that the body and soul of Jesus were human, but his nature, natural spirit was replaced by divine, the divine logos. I don't know how they came up with that, but the idea was that Jesus' personality was replaced by the logos. His multiple personality disorder. No. So in a word, Jesus had a human body, but not a human mind. I don't know, man. I just remember Jesus weeping, and I remember being human. I'm sure he laughed. I'm sure he like was like, man, I'm hungry. I want some figs. Remember when we went to the fig tree? He wasn't producing any figs. He said he, was, he said he was hungry. You think about it, like he was a child, right? He was fully man and fully God. He grew up as a child. He loved his mom. Come on. So people just take these various views because they have a perception and they don't want to acknowledge the entirety of Scripture. Unfortunately, you have that in theologians. They have their own little theological box and they stay there. And you're like, oh, we can't be wrong. I'm like, nah, you're wrong. You're heresy now. So <laughs> the idea was that Jesus' personality was replaced by the Logos, right? In a word, Jesus had a human body but not a human mind. Apollinarianism was rejected by the Council of Constantinople in 381. They recognized that it was not just our human body that needed salvation, but our minds and spirit as well. Because are you saved by your physical body? No. You're saved by making a conscious claim of faith to Jesus Christ. He gave us a mind to think. They recognized, um, uh, therefore, Jesus had to be fully and truly man if 
he were to represent us uh, to be our substitute and save us. In a word, Apollinarian, Christology failed to meet the essential conditions of redemption. We are God's greatest creation on earth. Sin can only be forgiven through a blood sacrifice. God provided the first sacrifice and then provided the last sacrifice to Jesus Christ. So by the shedding of blood, by God's greatest creation in human nature, that we are forgiven. So, penal substitutionary atonement. Nestorianism. Nestorian. Nestorianism. <laughs> Fifth century. Just keeps getting worse as it goes. So the bishop of Constantinople in 428 was a popular preacher. Whether he himself taught the heretical view, that goes by his name, is doubtful since he later affirmed the findings of Chalcedon. So, unfortunately, you do have disciples that get more extreme from their teachers. You do see that a lot, specifically in um, Arminianism. So, Jacobus Arminius, he actually didn't have a problem with four points of Calvinism opposed to just one limited atonement. That's the only problem he had with it. So then they started saying, well, you can lose your salvation, all those other things. He actually never said that. So you see that on a consistent basis. The disciples are more extreme than the teacher. Nestorianism uh, is the doctrine that they were two separate persons in Christ, two persons in one body. Yeah. Just weird. The idea is that there was a human person and a divine person. There's different from the biblical view that Jesus is one person. Historians opposed to use uh, the term Theoticus, which is the mother of God. He said this was an inappropriate term for the mother of Jesus. His reasoning that was that Mary was the mother of the man Jesus only and not the divine Logos. There's a many, there's big debate on that one. This view was condemned at the Council of Ephesus in 431. You notice how all these things are condemned? So this heresy is very interesting because you have a guy in a monastery in Constantinople. He taught the opposite area of Nestorianism. He denied that the human nature of Christ remained fully human. The human nature was taken up and absorbed into the divine nature. I just wonder where they came up with this stuff. Both natures were changed somewhat, and the third kind of nature resulted. By this teaching, Christ was neither truly God nor truly man. He could not represent us as man. He could not be God and earn our salvation. The Council of Chalcedon, which we're going to go over the creeds in a little bit. All right. So now we have the creeds, the Apostles' Creed. I believe in God, the Father Almighty, the creator of heaven and earth, in, and in Jesus Christ, his only Son, our Lord, who was conceived of the Holy Spirit, born of a virgin Mary, suffered under Pontius Pilate, was crucified, died, and was buried. The third day he arose again from the dead. He ascended into heaven and sits at the right hand of the, 
uh, God the Father Almighty, whence he shall come to judge the living and the dead. Okay. So most people don't like creeds. The word in Latin, credo, means I believe. So I hope you believe this. Here's what the Nicene Creed says. We believe in one God, the Father, the Almighty, maker of heaven and earth, of all that is, seen and unseen. We believe in one Lord, Jesus Christ, and in only, uh, the only Son of God, eternally begotten of the Father, God from God, life from light, true God from true God, begotten, not made, of one being with the Father. Through him all things were made. He suffered death and was buried. On the third day he rose again in accordance with the scriptures. He ascended into heaven and is seated at the right hand of the Father. He will come again in glory to judge the living and the dead, and his kingdom will have no end. The Chalcedonian Creed. Following then, the Holy Fathers, we unite in teaching all men to confess the one and only Son, our Lord Jesus Christ. This selfsame one is perfect both in deity and in humanness. This selfsame one is also actually God and actually man. With the rational soul and the body, he is of the same reality as God as far as his deity is concerned and of the same reality as we ourselves as far as the humanist is concerned, thus like us in all respects, sin only expected. Before time began, he was begotten of the Father in respect of his deity. And now in these last days, for us in behalf of our salvation, this selfsame one was born of the Mary, the virgin, who is God-bearer in respect of his humanness. Colossians 2.9 says, For in him the whole fullness of deity dwells bodily. I hope tonight we were able to prove the deity of Jesus Christ. And we did it in under an hour. Amen. Everyone tell Pastor Jay that, all right? <laughs> Shots fired. He's not even here to defend himself. <laughs> all right, but um, so here are your questions, okay? I didn't give you any scripture because I think I gave you enough scripture today. Yeah, just a little bit, all right? And we didn't even hit all of it, really. We could have gotten deeper into some other stuff, but I think we just got, we got the point. So the question, is Jesus God? If so, how do we know? Did Jesus ever claim to be God? <laughs> Just a little bit, right? What does this mean for the Christian faith? So I want you to break up into groups, make circles, right? Meet someone you don't know. Don't be shy. Ahora, in Spanish, now, hurry. 